Pleasure to be speaking to you. Uh, people know you from, uh, you've been on here a few times talking about Stanley Marks. You're also the author of Portraits from the Revolution. It's uh, interviews of the protesters of Occupy uh, Wall Street, the, those early days. And so to start that off, where can people find more about you? Do you have a Facebook page or a website? or? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for that, Lon. Yeah, they can go right to my main site, which is just Rob Couteau. Dot com. Last name is C-O-U-T-E-A-U.com. And that actually has all of my um, literary and political writings. And also there's a, a link to the fine arts because I, I'm also a painter. And my whole life is right up there. So perfect the best place uh, yeah, to go. I urge people yeah. to click on that if they're in front of a computer while they're listening to this interview. Otherwise, uh, after the fact, get there. Okay. Today... There is another book. You you discovered Stanley Marks and helped bring him to the world, and we're so thankful for that. And uh, last time I think you were on with his daughter. Uh, was it Roberta or Bobby? Roberta, also known as Bobby. That yeah. was a lovely show, the three of us together. Yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. great. So um, today you have discovered a play. It's a three-act play about the JFK assassination, and of course it's called – a murder most foul, or a time to cry, a time to die, and it's staggering how good the writing is and the insight of Mr. Stanley Marks. This play came out very early. His his um, forget what you want to call it, so I'll just call it manuscript. But um, give us an introduction to um, how you how you caught Mr. Marks in in uh, on the horizon, and then. How you discovered this play, mm-hmm. and, and just before that, we should say that the play is now available. It, it, this is yes, it uh, it just went online last night. So if you go to bookfinder.com, which lists all the bookstores all all around the world that are online, uh, it's slowly getting added to um, bookfinder.com. So in the next week or so, it should be on all the Amazons and Barnes and Nobles and many independent bookstores as well. Right. So I think I should preface just this if, if people don't know about that. There's Murder Most Foul 
by by Stanley Marks is uh, we feel the book that Bob Dylan had read or read something to inspire him to know so much about the facts and he wrote that fantastic song Murder Most Foul and uh, and then that really got the ball rolling uh, but I mean I think I might have been saying to you just beforehand that I, I'm always surprised that you think well what what's going to happen is there a new book is there a new you know how can there keep being things that pop up on the horizon and here is another one I was just shocked as I'm going halfway through it how does he know all this stuff and and I know an awful lot at arm's length researching this for so many years right and then you read what what Stanley Marks was writing about and his insight and it's just uh it's it's unbelievable and, and hats off to you for for bringing it back to life thank you and we should add that the book you're referencing the non-fiction murder most foul um, which has a subtitle, 975 Questions and Answers. That was published in September 1967. So, you know, it probably took him a couple of years to write this book. So by 1965, 1966, he was, it, like as Jim Eugenio said, light years ahead of the other first-generation researchers, we feel. I can't. I can't overestimate that or over, you know, you just, I, he really is. And I'm, um, get that book if anybody has it. But I almost think that this play is so interesting. But this play is probably interesting to someone who has their, their feet on the ground with JFK research. If they know the topic, they will recognize uh, just how right on he is. I know sometimes mm-hmm. I, I let someone else... Um, you know, like layman to the case, read a book or something, and it's just too much for him. Well, you know, mm. who's Bob McNamara? Who's this? You mm. know, oh, okay, this is really going over your head. But mm. um, for those who really have a are grounded in the in the people around that time, this is light years. Light years. It's astounding. Mm, mm, it really is. And to answer your question, you know, I'll just recap how Stanley bobbed up over the horizon once again. Um, and by the way, he died in 1999, and although he pu- he self-published 25 books in his lifetime, he was virtually forgotten, you know, um, until the Dylan song came out. But what happened was, uh, 10 years ago, in 2013, I received a call from a friend of mine named Molly, and she was inside Powell's bookshop in Portland, and she knew I was interested in the subject, and she said, guess what, the, there was just this estate sale of very rare early JFK assassination titles. Do you want to talk to the clerk and find out what they have? So I said, yeah, put them on the phone. And besides a a very rare first edition of Ray Marcus's Bastard Bullet, the clerk told me they had this book called Murder Most Foul, The Conspiracy That Murdered President Kennedy. And the subtitle immediately picked my interest, 975 Questions and Answers. Never heard of this before. So I said, yeah, put that on the list, okay? Um, and again, published in 1967. So when the books finally arrived in my house in New York state, uh, I have to admit I was very careless because, you know, I'm quickly thumbing through the stack of books and I opened up murder most foul, probably to the wrong place. Um, you know, a discussion about the Warren commission, uh, report being 
a hoax. And, you know, that was a conclusion that I personally reached by the by the 1970s. So I thought, oh, this is probably outdated. I just popped it onto my bookshelf. I forgot about it. Uh, five years later, 2018, I'm doing house cleaning. I said, what the hell? Uh, let's sell some old books. I put it on eBay. So it sits on eBay until March 26, 2020. You know that date, Len, right? What, what date that was? The Dylan song. Yeah. Came, came out, right? So that day, the book sold. So I said, geez, I wonder why this sold today. And I did a quick search of the title. Lo and behold, the photograph that I had made of the front cover, which had a distinctive stain on it, it's replicated all across the internet, all these different Dylan sites. And it was a Dylan blogger who bought the book. And then I discovered the Dylan song. So I put it up on my Facebook. Jim Eugenio noticed it. And he said, do you know who's got a copy of this? It turns out I had the only available copy for sale anywhere in the world. And fortunately, I neglected to mail it that day. It was all wrapped up. I got lazy. I didn't go to the post office. Jim says, can you take a look at it and give me a summary? So I unwrap it. This time I opened up to the postscript, the last chapter, which basically blew my mind because what he was saying was so prescient, so far ahead of the time. And he was talking in, in that postscript, he was also talking about what are they going to do to Jim Garrison? Are they going to kill him or are they going to character assassinate him? I'm paraphrasing here. And that's basically what they did, right? There was a character assassination. He was one of the only people who, from the very beginning, uh, believed in the work of Jim Garrison uh, and included it in Murder Most Foul. So um, anyway, I scanned the entire text, sent Jim a copy. I sat down and I read it through and... um, I realized we've got to bring this back into print. So I, I was successful in bringing that into print and also his uh, subsequent two JFK books. Uh, the second one is called Two Days of Infamy. And the two dates he's referring to are the date of the assassination and the date that the Warren Commission issued its report. Um, and the third book uh, is was called Coup d'etat, which is um, – about all three assassinations. And he was one of the first people to immediately uh, come to the conclusion that the same forces, the same powers that be, the same people uh, were involved in all three, uh, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Um, So to get back to the play, um, immediately I started wondering, well, who was this guy, Stanley Marks? Nobody knew anything about him. And so I started researching. I went on Ancestry.com. There was still uh, a couple of books of other titles that he had published available that I got. Uh, In in one of those books, there was a dedication to his daughter. So I got the daughter's name. I slowly put together a family tree on Ancestry. And I also started poking around on Newspapers.com. And one of the other places I went to was the U.S. Copyright Office, which is, you know, I, ha- I already had an account with them because I, pub- I published books. And um, so I noticed there were many titles that he'd registered, but there was also 
um, a registration for, as you say, a manuscript, uh, which received a copyright on February 19th, 1968, and it had a similar title. It's called um, A Murder Most Foul, or A Time to Cry, A Time to Die. And um, subsequently, I found out that this had never been published before. Um, and so how to get a copy, you know, became the next obsession. That would have to wait until I finally tracked down Stan's daughter, Bobby Marks. Um, it's actually this month is our anniversary because um, we first made contact in April of 2020. And um, we spoke, I sent her a letter, you know, asking her, um, you know, telling her that I was preparing this in, this essay for Kennedys and King about her father and, um, you know, what could she tell me about his work? <laughs> and she answered me, you know, I saw this envelope with her return address. I got so excited that I opened it up and she said, basically, unfortunately, I've never read my father's book, so there's not, I can't really help you. <laughs> okay. Um, so I wrote her another letter. I said, please, it doesn't matter if you've never read his books. I need a human connection. I, you know, tell me a funny story about him. Just tell me something about who this guy was. And um, so, so a couple of weeks later on May 13th, 2020, she, she phoned me and we became very close friends. And so she helped me to fill out an app to create an affidavit um, that we presented to the Library of Congress and the Copyright Office proving that she inherited the estate as his sole heir. Um, and after many, many emails and um, forms and back and forth on April 30th, 2021, we got we got the 81 page manuscript from the Library of Congress. So that that's the story of how we finally dug it up. Wow. Yeah. A time to cry, a time to die. OK, so there is uh, a preface and uh, there is on the life of times by Rob Couteau, uh, 185. And then at the end, there's an afterward by James D. Eugenio. And the book is you said just available, probably. Wow, we're right on the on the top of this. That it came out yesterday, and it's uh, yes. published by Dominant Star. Yes, that's fantastic. Yeah, and so there's, you know, um, I include an introduction to the play, which is called the Ripple Effect, which we'll talk about why it's titled that in a moment. Then there's then there's the play, and Stanley also has a pref his own preface to the play. Um, and then on the life and times of Stanley J. Marks is uh, a very long essay that I have that is is kind of like a timeline, a chronology of this guy's life, which is a whole other story because I, I call him a Zelig-like figure after that film that Woody Allen made about this this person who's always seems to be at the right place at the right time, and his own the microcosm of his life is reflecting the macrocosm. Um, and, and that's, that's also about Stanley because, um, his own biography is so incredible. I mean, he was blacklisted by the house on American activities committee. Um, something his daughter had no idea of. He, he, he kept it a secret. He didn't want her to worry. Uh, he published 20 books on politics and religion. One of, one of those books received accolades from Arnold Toynbee and, Herbert Marcuse, the, the famous uh, historian and philosopher, 
Um, and his first book, I mean, this is an incredible story in itself. He wrote this book about, it's a, it's a military analysis of the Soviet Union called The Bear That Walks Like a Man. It was published in 1943, while the Soviet Union was our ally in the Second World War. And uh, this was also basically a self-published book because it was published by a vanity press. Um, yet they did not charge him a fee which is very unusual. He had a standard book contract, standard royalty, and it was reviewed positively in over 30 newspapers, mainstream newspapers and journals. Um, it received praise from John Cudahy, who was President Roosevelt, FDR's former ambassador to Poland and Belgium. And while Marx was researching his book, I don't know how he did this, but he was given assistance by Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who is known as the father of the United Nations. Um, he, Hull gave Marx direct access to State Department files. Um, and what I think is one of the strangest things that happened is that in 1973, the JFK Library contacted Stanley Marks with a letter requesting information on how to purchase Murder Most Foul, his first nonfiction book on the, on the JFK assassination. They wanted it for the library. I mean, how did they find out about Murder Most Foul? I have no idea. And then in 1979, the House of Representatives Select Subcommittee on Assassinations listed five of Marx's titles in its report. So, I mean, that's really a zealot-like life, I think, you know? Wow, it's so interesting. It's kind of funny. You, you, they really wanted to buy the book for the, uh, for the archives, yeah. Yeah, and I include, you know, I, I got that information directly from Bobby Marks, and she uh, scanned the letter uh, with, you know, the official letterhead on it and everything. She scanned that and sent it to me, so we included it uh, in, in the play, there's a reproduction of it in this book and also in Murder Most Foul. In, in the nonfiction Murder Most Foul, we include it in both of those books. All right. Well, let's get to the play. And now, uh, do you know if the play was ever put on for anyone? That's a really good question. Um, there is, you know, he includes, um, what would you call it? Like, you know, notes to the um, producers. Yeah, director. Uh, Right. There's like director's notes inside the script. And there is a note that that talks about the fact he's talking about um, whoever wants to to produce this play, feel free to switch these two particular scenes. You know, the scene is in the end. You could move it more to the beginning. And what he says there is that um, when it was performed, some of the actors felt or some of the people there felt that um it should stay where it is and some people thought it should be moved so based on that one reference we know that this was performed we don't know if it was performed publicly or just in front of a private group of people we don't really know uh, i would also add that um he continued to work on variations of this play for the rest of his life and um those later versions of the play were published. Um, you know, you know, the, the, this came out in um, 
in in February of 68 and not long after that Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were killed so I I, I feel it's possible the reason he never uh, published this in book form as he did with the other versions of the play is that you know history was moving too fast for him and he wanted to rewrite the play to include the other assassinations which he did and that version is called Murders, plural, most foul. Well, uh, let's get into uh, an overview of, of the play. Do you want to uh, sure. talk about the preface? Yeah, so um, the, the, the play is basically structured around two groups of people. Um, the first group we might call the plotters, uh, the leading backers of the plot. Uh, the powers that be, the gray eminence. Um, and that group is basically composed of th- three key people. There's some subsidiary characters, but the three key people, one is named King, I believe, because he's he's the kingmaker, right? And he's the real eminence gris, you know, the gray eminence. Uh, and his, his cronies, one is called Noslin or Noslin. I, I believe that he calls him that because... Um, he sort of plays Watson to Dr. Holmes. He's, he, he, he's not noticing things right under his nose, so he's noseling. And then this prince um, is, the, is the third figure. Um, so that's, that's the main group. Um, and then there's a hit team, which is composed, the leader of the hit team is appropriately named Executor. Um, there are four Cubans in this group, um, one is called Tiger, one is called Dancer, Bulldog, and Hawk. Um, and then there's some other figures. There's a Lion, and there's Pilot. Um, I'll get back to that in a second. Pilot is actually David Ferry. Um, there's also a character named Marine, uh, which is obviously Oswald. He's also got the nickname Patsy. And then there's a character named Stripper, the stripper, uh, who's clearly based on Jack Ruby, the Dallas nightclub owner who ran the strip joint, what was then called the strip joint, the Carousel Club. Um, you know, I, I hate to interrupt, but the thing that 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 I found intriguing, or just whatever, um, is that they this one character, it's the same character. When he's in the room, they refer to him. They call him Marine. As soon mm. as he walks out of the room, they're talking about him. They call him Patsy. Yeah, right. right. So right. it's uh, it, it isn't two different people, you know, and it's just right. so funny to his face. Okay, Marine, and then yeah. all right, somebody get yeah. Patsy his packing gear, you know. Right. I mean, that's the that's the wonderful thing about the fact that this is a play because Stanley can take all his knowledge and play around with it and um, theorize more than you might want to do in a nonfiction uh, work, you know. Um, there there are also. Uh, Two characters that, you know, when I was preparing for our discussion yesterday, Len, uh, I was looking through the book again. And there's two characters in the hit team uh, that that are only referred to briefly. Uh, one is called Hands, as in a human hand, and the other is Doc. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, who could these people be? Um, well, I figured it out last night, and I'll go into it in more detail, but... Um, these are the two people that, that when 
Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby, there was a detective um, who who gave Oswald artificial respiration, which is basically going to make a bullet a bullet shot worse and, and ensure his death. And there was a fake doctor um, in the room. Um, and so Hans and Doc refer to these people. You know, there's all these little mysteries in the play that are waiting to be solved. And then there are also two Marine lookalikes. So he's referencing here the fact that um, there were fake Oswalds on the scene, which we know now is true. So it's quite an interesting cast of characters. So this is like, you know, he's writing in 1965-66 to put this out for 67, and he's already realizing that there is an imposter. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Or a double or whatever, mm-hmm. and then you can kind of get into the John Armstrong area mm-hmm. of the intelligence community, but... Uh, right, right. Yeah, so ahead and, of time. And so, you know, it's really interesting, um, if you have Murder Most Foul, the nonfiction work, which I refer to as MMF1, um, if you have that in hand, if you've read that already, and then you've got the play, MM, MMF2, uh, you can see that, um, you know, he, he, he published... The nonfiction work, September 67, right? And then the play comes out February 68. So all the ideas are fresh in his mind. And he's basically transposing the nonfiction into a fiction, into a drama, you know? And I I can give you some very interesting examples of this. Um, For example, in the first Murder Most Foul, question 928, Um, he's answering one of these questions he poses and he says, Jack Ruby shot Oswald, but did not murder him. An unknown detective straddled Oswald's body and gave him artificial respiration in spite of the fact that this treatment pumped the blood out of Oswald's body. And that last phrase is italicized, is underlined. Then he says, A belly wound, by today's medical standards, is not a fatal wound. Nearly 70% of the cases show recovery if assistance is rendered quickly. Someone in the police department could not afford to have those odds working in Oswald's favor. Then, here's a second person. An unidentified man who looked like a doctor was also seen over Oswald's body. This man of 23 years old, approximately, was permitted to leave by a policeman who, quote, thought he was a doctor. So, you know, that's in um, that's in the nonfiction work. okay? Um, And, you know, in 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 the fictional work, we've got this dialogue. that 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 basically you know go, goes into the same thing so it's really interesting to compare the two let me give you some other examples here so th- there's another scene where king says to one of the characters named rattler i want you to contact the stripper again that's jack ruby for safety's sake also hands and doc they will know what to do when well the cops will have to transfer him to another jail that would be the best time so this is basically the only reference to hands and doc okay but what he's saying in the play in the dialogue is you know 
the detective his hands because he's he's pumping his stomach to make sure the blood uh, is lost and and doc is the fake doctor but there's no you know there's no explanation to um to the reader you know who these people could be um how did how did stanley know about this so um you know as jim as jim says in his postscript marx was one of the very few people in america who read both the 888 page warren commission report and the accompanying 26 volumes of testimony and exhibits and so uh how did he know about who he calls hands and doc well um let me pull it up here in the um in volume 19 of the warren commission hearings and exhibits page 410 to 413 uh we find out that um there was a dallas detective named wilbur j crutshaw who testified about oswald's transfer and the appearance of this quote-unquote doctor uh and it's called the crestraw exhibit um and i I can quote from it here it's quote crestraw stated that after marching through the jail office door he immediately closed the door to prevent anyone from following after which he opened the door to admit oswald who was being carried on a stretcher he said he was still at this door when a young man approximately 24 or 25 years old wearing a dark colored sport jacket came to the door and said he was a doctor stationed there crutchlaw said he admitted this man when he noticed a stethoscope in his right hand pocket um and he estimated you know that there were like 76 police officers on the security detail standing shoulder to shoulder but nobody's there asking jack ruby what are you doing here well, I guess they just knew Ruby, you know. They just, yeah. oh, there he is, there he is. He's our old yeah. buddy there. Right. right. So it's it's kind of interesting, you know, to compare the two books and to see how he, he transposes fact into drama. It's also interesting because, you know, how did he get the idea of, of doing a play? And I start off in my preface talking about McBird. Have you ever read McBird, Lynn? Do you know about McBird? I know about it. I haven't read it. But just mm. for listeners, give them a brief overview. Well, it's pretty unreadable. It's 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 uh, it's a ghastly piece of work. But there was a woman named Barbara Garson uh, who wrote who wrote a play called McBird, um, which was a satire based on Macbeth, um, and it was privately printed in 1966. Then the following year, it was issued by Penguin and Grove Press. It sold over 200,000 copies. Um, and it, it was it opened at the Village Gate in Manhattan, which used to be a great cultural center. Now it's like a Chase Bank. Jack Kerouac used to read his poems there, and there was great jazz there. Um, and then it was produced in Los Angeles, where Stanley Marks lived with his wife, um, and at and at the Committee Theater in in San Francisco. So, you know, I know from Bobby that um, besides being a very devoted assassination researcher, Stanley and his wife were connoisseurs of the theater. So it's highly likely that Stan witnessed at least one performance of McBird um, during its very long run. And we can easily assume that he would be completely outraged by its cynical and insipid treatment of the Kennedy legacy. And, you know, one of the things I quote from the play 
she she's calling uh, Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy heartless individuals that were purposely made heartless by their father. You know, and and here's like the most empathy driven president in the history of the United States that she's trying to convince people had no heart. So, you know, it's not surprising that the major media got behind this play, uh, helped her to sell 200,000 copies and, you know, published all kinds of glowing reviews about it. Um, And it's basically folk. McBird is basically focused on this kind of, you know, personal narrative uh, that highlights the animosity flaring up between Bobby Kennedy and President Johnson after President Kennedy is killed. So. While McBird, uh, you know, is being is, is being uh, published and, and read in 1966, Marx is hard at work asking questions about the true nature of the mass media. He's talking about the fact that American mass media is infiltrated with embedded CIA agents. I mean, who's who's thinking about this in 1966? Right. And, and then he, you know, he publishes the book and, and discusses it in the book. Well, yeah, he was ahead of his time. I know when I think of 1966, I think of like Mark Lane as an early critic. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I think of the early days of May Russell. But there's only a few people that come to mind that were, you know, really ahead of the curve. Um, right. Maybe right. Vince Salandria. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I often think of Vince Salandria when I read Stanley Marx because they were both visionaries. And um, as I'll talk about in a minute, like, you know, Salandria always said, you know, we, we, we were tricked into focusing on the microanalysis of Dealey Plaza. But the real reason for the assassination goes way beyond that. We have to develop a macro view. And Stanley had a macro view in, 19, in 1967. That, that's the key thing to be said here. Um, also, you know, we were talking about the notes to producers and directors um, that he made. He, here's a note from the play. He says, in act two, scene one, two false Oswalds are seen but not heard. There is more than sufficient evidence in the report and the hearings to prove that in the conspiracy, a minimum of three Oswalds were used. Um, and then, you know, in the scene that follows, uh, depicts executor, the leader of the hit team interacting with his subordinates, um, one of whom is named lion. And so the play reads like this lion walks to rear right door, opens it and motions with hand in walk two men dressed in the identical clothes worn by Marine hair comb the same way and the same height and build. They walk only about 10 feet into the room, stop and face the others. The Cubans say, it can't be three of them. What's up? Executor. Yes. These two men look like Marine. They are decoys chosen to protect us and him. At no time will any one of you speak to any one of them unless they speak to you first. So, that's kind of pretty, you know, obviously, um, you won't find anything like that in Garson's play, McBird, you know, um, Stan, Stanley also cites in the nonfiction murder most foul, he cites Richard Popkin who wrote the second Oswald published in 1966. Right. So 
you know, that's the other thing is that if, if you read uh, The First Murder Most Foul um, and you notice the books that he's citing, you know, besides the Warren Commission report, um, you know, he mentions uh, Epstein's inquest, Fonzie Gayton's uh, article, The Warren Commission, The Truth and Arnold Specter. Uh, he relied heavily on Joaquim Jostin Oswald, assassination or fall guy. Uh, also mentions Penn Jones, forgive my grief, and Penn Jones um, later on quoted from Stanley's books. Uh, also mentions Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane, Sylvia Meager, Assessors After the Fact, and Harold Weisberg, uh, Whitewash, and Pop Popkin and several other books. So, I mean, he, he, he really stayed in the forefront of the important literature, but he was also an attorney, so he had the ability to to put those facts together in, in a way that a lot of these other writers and researchers could not do. And he had an amazing grasp of history. Uh, when he was a young man, he assembled a private library of 5,000 books on history. So he was able to detect historical patterns that repeat themselves through the centuries. And, you know, he could see those patterns in, in the assassination. Yeah, and I feel he was right. Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's just not the speculation or the assertion of these things. I think he's right. Mm -hmm. And um, and just heading in the right direction, like when you read early Jim Garrison notes about, you know, where mm -hmm. he's going with stuff. And you go, right. wow. I mean, right. Uh, Right. And by the way, you know, it's quite possible. I'm going to jump ahead here a little bit. It's quite possible that Garrison was aware of Stanley's nonfiction murder most foul. And the reason for that is um, Stanley um, read Paris Flamand's book, which was the first um, really serious investigation into what Jim Garrison was doing, and it was very supportive, right? Uh, so, so Stanley read that book um, and cites it in um, in one of his subsequent JFK books. I believe it's in um, Two Days of Infamy. Um, and Paris Flamand has a very brief bibliography that he includes in the back of um, his book on on Garrison, and guess guess what book is included in the in the bibliography? Murder Most Foul. Okay, we also know that Garrison read everything, and Paris Flamand would have sent him a copy of that book, and so it's quite possible that um that, that Garrison ordered a copy of it. We just don't know. That was in January 1969 when. Um, Flamand's book, The Kennedy Conspiracy, an uncommissioned report on the Jim Garrison investigation, uh, first came out. Yeah. Imagine the, those early days. Who mm. was even reading the Warren Commission and who was even uh, deciding to make a critique of it? Right, right, right. So let's see. What else can we talk about here? Yeah, there's also, you know, I think one of the, one of the key contrib contributions that Marx made was that he was aware from the very beginning uh, of the role of the mass media in promoting these lies and in um, supporting um, 
the deep political state. And, um, you know, that, that comes out clearly in the nonfiction Murder Most Foul. But we also see it in the play. Like, for example, we have this dialogue that occurs between King and Noslin and Prince uh, as they discuss Oswald in relationship to the assassination of Patrolman Tippett and the attempted murder of uh, Major General Edwin Walker. So Noslin, you know, again, Noslin is the clueless one. So he says, from the, the television and other newspaper reports published last year, there seems to be no doubt that Patsy was the only one involved in those affairs, to which King replies, let me say that those reports were made by organizations who know on what side their bread is buttered. And then later in the play, King continues, and the owners of the press didn't give a damn, and they still don't give a damn. In fact, I would venture a guess that 90% of them applauded JFK's murder. And then, as we were saying before, this also Marx's awareness that all this went beyond a microanalysis. Um, uh, you know, while both the play and the um, nonfiction work uh, portray an in-depth understanding of the Dealey Plaza events, um, but they but they also contain a macro view regarding specifically the financial interests of transnational corporations. And again, this is something no, you know, who's thinking about this in 1966? So we have King. This is just an amazing piece of dialogue. King says in the play, we may be able to keep the reasons why the chief was murdered from our generation. However, sometime in the future, students of the event will finally discover that the, the fact that he was done away with because our group believed um, that the chief's conduct of our national and international affairs was inimical to both us and the nation. Another man said it in another manner. What was good for GM was good for the nation. Just as he placed his interests first, so do we. GM, of course, being a reference to General Motors. Right. And, and the then thing, we, mm-hmm. did, you, did you get the idea that this was um, Alan Dulles, the guy nicknamed King? Wow, that, that's an excellent question. Because um, that's what I did. And then, that's you know, really I, I, interesting. Mm. And what I picked up from that was that from Sullivan Cromwell, there was a law firm representing the big business of America. Mm-hmm. And when they had a problem, they went to their Sullivan sure. Cromwell to say, can you help this? And then Alan Dulles, John Foster Dulles, uh, they were able to uh, affect American foreign policy without it going to be voted on by Congress. They would mm-hmm. just say, let me take care of that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, yeah, that, that's a really interesting idea, Len. I mean, um, you know, he does talk about Dulles' key role in the nonfiction Murder Most Foul and throughout all his other books. Um you know, he he was clearly suspicious of, of, of Dulles' role. Let's put it that way. I just want to reflect back to that question. So did you have that opinion that, or, or who did you think that the king was? Or, or do you have an opinion if you don't? Fight? Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question. Um, I felt that it was more of a composite figure of just the powers that be, you know, uh, the uh, a composite figure of the oligarchy in some sense. Um, because, and also because the, um, the hit team seems to have people on it that are connected to the CIA and the FBI. 
Okay. So my interpretation was that King represents the level above the CIA and the FBI who are, who are telling Dulles, you know, this is what we need done. And it's up to you to figure out how to do it. But that, that, that was just my, you know, impression. You could very well be right. You know, no, and I'm just interested in your thoughts as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Okay. Um, there's also a kind of parallel figure with the leader of the, um, the hit team exec executor. So, you know, he says something similar. He says, we have discovered that the chief that's JFK has sent a secret agent to open negotiations with the bearded one. That's a reference to Fidel Castro, um, the dictator of Cuba. And he continues, he JFK is attempting a detente with the reds. His feelers with the various red nations, and keep keep that phrase in mind, to obtain some sort of peace, a live and let live attitude does not appeal to us and to various sectors of our economy. Internally, there's too damn much socialism. So we believe he must go and go he will. Now, this really struck me. I mean, um, you know, on the one hand, as as with as with Marx's nonfiction, again, these are statements that transcend the microanalysis of the assassination. You know, how many bullets were fired? Where was Oswald standing when JFK was hit? And it expands into a much broader perspective of what was really behind it. Um, but what's amazing about this is, you know, there's that line. Um, JFK is attempting a detente with the Reds, his feelers with the various Red nations. Uh, now, this is this is not only a reference to the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, but this is also referring to JFK's planned opening to China. Who's thinking about this in relationship to the JFK assassination in 1966? Um, and as, as early as 1970, Marx is already discussing the connection between the assassination and JFK's foreign policy in places other than Vietnam, Cuba, or the USSR. In the second paragraph, this is in 1970 of his book, Coup d'etat, he writes, quote, the reasons for his murder can be traced to his conduct of his internal and external program, his ideas for a test ban on the use of of atomic weapons, his groping and initial steps toward red China, his attempt to secure a detente with the Soviet Union, um, and so on and so forth. So I I, I feel that, you know, that is really and truly uh, incredibly prescient, um, that, that he makes that, that reference, don't you think? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, just almost every page, there's something there that you... Right. I mean, drops. again, how many researchers in 1970 are even thinking about JFK's foreign policy? And we know more about this because Roger Hilsman, who was an advisor to JFK, and Hilsman had served in the OSS, in the Pacific Theater... You know, he was a serious guy. He also served as um, 
Assistant Secretary of State, I believe, for Far Eastern Affairs under President Johnson. So in, in 1969, he was interviewed for the um, LBJ Library, the, President Johnson's li- library archive. And um, in the interview, he says that – Hilsman says that as far back as 1961, Kennedy told him that he wanted to move toward diplomatic recognition of Red China. So somehow Marx, Marx had, had his feelers out to that, you know, and included it in the play obliquely, you could say. All right. Well, really, um, without going through all of the play, I think one thing that we really have to talk about is uh, in Act 3, uh, there's something called the critique in which he, he goes over this whole world view of what the ramifications are and what, what these guys – in this businessman's meeting are setting up. Mm. That's uh, right there. I think it's like <laughs> worth the price of the book. Mm. What in particular struck you? Just, just the fact that like you mentioned about opening up China and opening up other things, just the way they were planning ahead for the next 10, 20 years because mm. of removing Kennedy, this is what they're averting or this is what they're sidestepping. Um, you know, just at an overview, it was like, wow, was mm-hmm. he ever in tune? With, in, mm-hmm. Instead of saying, well, there's a lone Marxist, uh, you know, uh, disgruntled, uh, you know, Marxist-Leninist, whatever, decided to kill Kennedy, you know? Right, right, right. That's a good point. And, you know, the play, as you're saying, the play is not just about the assassination. The play is also about what's going to happen after Kennedy's removed and how the course of history will be radically altered. And that's why Vietnam, the Vietnam War, uh, also has has an important role in this play. Um, the one thing I, I must mention is that th- there is an amazing uh, piece of, of dialogue in this play Um it's a remark made by King shortly after Oswald, who's called Patsy, is killed. And this is this is what he says, and this is where I, I take the title, The Ripple Effect. He says, you know, when I organized this event, I never thought the ramifications would be so great. I found that a conspiracy is like throwing a stone in the water. From the center, the ripples keep getting larger and larger until it seems that the whole body of water is agitated. Everything those ripples touch reacts in a different manner. We murdered one man today, but a thousand, no, hundreds of thousands are going to die. No one on this earth will ever be the same. Um, this, this statement captures the key concept of the play and transforms it into a powerful simile. Uh, and I added a footnote. You know, I, I was very s- sparing in footnotes. I didn't want to turn this into an academic work. But I added um, a footnote to this because I feel that when we place this dialogue in the context of what is going to happen in places such as the Congo, Indonesia, and Vietnam, as a result of this radical shift away from Kennedy's anti-colonialist policies, we realize that Marx is not exaggerating. There were millions of people killed 
in American paramilitary operations, essentially programs of extermination. And, you know, I, I asked Jim Eugenio, uh, can you give me a rough estimate of how many people were killed as a result of Kennedy's policies being reversed in these places? And this is what he said, Vietnam, 5.8 million. And this includes the Cambodian Holocaust. Indonesia, a low estimate, 500,000, a high estimate, 850,000. The Congo, usually given as 100,000, but after the overthrow of Mobutu, the number exploded to well over 5 million. Um, and, you know, there, there, there were also dire consequences in other places, like such as Latin America. Um, you know, there's, there's a 1964 interview in the JFK Library online that you could read with um, the former president of the Dominican Republic, Juan Bosch. Um, which occurred in 1964. And Bosch said, quote, I believe that if President Kennedy had remained in office for eight years, he would have left a tradition of political unity between the two Americas of working together. It did not happen that way. The fatal bullet did much harm to you, but greater harm to us. Yeah, I just almost unfathomable to talk about millions of people Killed mm. from America's the CIA, uh, uh, just running amok mm. around the world. Running amok is the way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, it, it's it's also very sad and ironic because um, Bobby Kennedy uh, gave a speech that's referred to as the Ripple of Hope Address, which occurred at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, you know, he was deeply opposed to the South African apartheid regime, um, and they didn't want him to come. Uh, but on June 6th, 1966, which is a haunting date, that's the day he gave the speech. June 6th is the same day that he was killed later on, you know. Um, and in that speech, Ripple of Hope, Bobby said, each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. And crossing each other from a million different corners of energy and daring, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. And I recently discovered, I didn't realize that the first half of that quote is engraved on his memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. I didn't see that. Yeah, it's quite amazing. And, you know, th there's another thing I wanted to add, which which is really amazing, is, um, and it's not talked about enough, the role of Jacqueline Kennedy in her husband's life. This was such an amazing, supportive woman in so many ways, and a very well-informed and very intelligent woman. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the book of interviews. It came out in 2011. Um, it's called Jacqueline Kennedy, Historic Conversations on the Life, on Life with John F. Kennedy. And it was, these are interviews that were conducted um, maybe six months after the assassination with um, author Schlesinger Jr. And, you know, 
in one of these interviews, this and this is on uh, June second, nineteen sixty-four. speaking about Laos and Vietnam, and this is what Jacqueline Kennedy says. She says Jack always said that the political thing there was more important than the military, and nobody's thinking of that. And they don't call the people who were in it before back in. In other words, you know, people who had expertise. And so that's the way chaos starts. If you read the story of the Bay of Pigs and the papers now, I mean, the CIA just operating so in the dark, saying, even if you get an order from the president, go ahead with it. Well, she continues, that's the kind of thing that's going to happen again. I mean, talk about prescient and and visionary, you know? Yeah, I haven't completely gone through her books, but I was uh, prompted to go through that uh, by a listener. And I still, because of time, only got halfway through it, but I'll have to mm, mm. put it on a number of lists of things to do. You have a big stack of books on your desk, I'm sure, Lynn, Yeah, huh? Yeah, uh, yeah, and things lined up, but... Uh, it's Tell me more about your your impressions and reactions of the play. I know you're about halfway through it right now. Um, oh, I, I listened to it once because I, I I got the advanced copy from you, which is like a PDF, and then I put mm-hmm. it on my phone and it reads to me. So mm. it plays all the way through once, and then I usually at least have to listen to something twice to make sure I got you know the points. And um, mm-hmm. but the the thing that just struck me is I kept thinking how ahead of his time, and you mentioned from Jim DiEugenio, light years. I mean, mm-hmm. I just, you know, wow, if, if people had read this in 1970, and when you're getting ready for uh, the 1978 House Select Committee on Assassinations, if they had marks there, here's the questions you should be asking organizing it, it would, mm. have, been, uh, it would have been astounding. But the, the whole thing is astounding. It's mm. so impressive. And I'm, I get that feeling of gratitude to you for bringing it to my attention and then to Stanley Marks for being so intuitive to put this down to write because you think you're mm-hmm. talking to, um, I don't know, a real university professor, if not the dean of a university. Mm-hmm. Just someone who was telling you, you know, it reminds me of some of the first times I went down to, to see Fletcher Prouty, and you sit mm-hmm. in his den, and he would sit in his chair there and talk to you, and he would just tell you matter-of-factly, well, look, this is how the world works. This mm. is what these guys are doing. Yeah, they they are planning overthrows. Yes, they are deciding to import cocaine from South America all over South Central, and and that's how we're going to fund our Cold War. And you, you go, no, they can't really be doing that, are they? You know, or... Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? We don't have another enemy. We're going to have to have a self-inflicted wound, a new Pearl Harbor. We're going mm. to have to have something, you know, and then you see 9-11 fall and then the Patriot Act and all this. And uh, for those who, who have written down, you know, it's going to be years later till we find some of these people who are insiders in the Department of Defense to, to go for. You know, well, anyway, one of them said, yeah, we've got a new war. We've got five or six countries we're going after right away, right? You know, mm. we're going into Afghanistan. We're going here. We're going to Iraq. We're... Yeah, but but Bin Laden was Saudi from Saudi Arabia. Now, don't worry about that. We're going into Libya too. We're going. We're going into. Right. It's right. just crazy. 
And yeah, like, and like Trump said when he goes, yeah, we have the oil. We've secured the oil. You know, we have the oil. That's why we're in Syria. And there you go. Mm-hmm. It barely makes a dent to people listening on CNN or Fox. It's just kind of, what? What did he say? Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Barely barely makes a dent, you know. And, you know, it's it's great that you're bringing up Fletcher because, you know, the role of the ruling economic elite, again, that's something that exists one level above the intelligence agencies and that use the media to broadcast its narratives, sell its products, especially weapons of war. Um, and you know what, what Garrison called the war machine. That, that concept was very rarely broached by assassination researchers other than Jim Garrison until Fletcher Prouty, who I believe he was the Pentagon's uh, liaison officer to the CIA, right, published his book, The Secret Team, in 1972, right? And and then later on, that's, that was also developed by Donald Gibson um, in his articles and later in his book, Battling Wall Street and the Kennedy assassination cover-up. Um, but, but Marx was raising this issue all throughout his oeuvre, all throughout his books. Um, well, if you don't mind me interrupting here, what, hmm. what you're getting at is when you listen to, um, I guess there's um, in in the critique or the decay of the American dream or mm-hmm. uh, what's going on, you get to hear these powerful people talking about matter-of-factly how, what they are going to be doing and their, mm-hmm. their point of view, which could be uncomfortable Right to to read, mm-hmm. you, go, you, you know, like I said, you know, no way they would be doing this, would they? But um, mm-hmm. that's what you get from Stanley Marks saying. Not only am I warning you about something, but here's what they would be saying, and yeah. it, it's not light reading. It's like you almost get, "Wow, was he there?" I mean, how mm-hmm. does he have this insight? <laughs> and I think looking back into it, that's the appreciation I have. Wow, he really mm-hmm. didn't have, have insight to how the world works and how, mm. because I, I've made a, a joke, I hate to repeat it too many times, but sometimes when we're talking about JFK assassination, or, you know, community and going up to, to inquire with the CIA and the Department of Defense, I say, mm-hmm. it's like a Boy Scout w- walking up to the clubhouse of the Hells Angels and knocking on the door and saying, hey, what are you guys doing in there? Oh, that's a good, that's a very good, you know, uh, an apt way of describing it, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there's a quote in, in the first Murder Most Foul and in the postscript in the last chapter. And he says, to whom does the mass communication system owe its loyalty to the people who have fought our fighting and will continue to fight for the ideas of the freedom of press or to its advertisers? And, you know, by advertisers, he, he's talking about the selling of the war, war machine, you know. Weapons yeah. of war, the selling of the weapons of war, you know. And then you find so many of these people that were in the Department of Defense, when they go for retirement, they're on the boards of Raytheon, they're on the board of directors of all these other companies, so they just mm-hmm. keep funneling it in. And then you you reflect back on uh, the Eisenhower's farewell address where he said, you know, unparalleled in, in the American culture, we've got to be aware of this industrialized military complex. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the old thing, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And all you have is an army. You're looking for somewhere to go attack. You Use yeah. your army. Yeah, it's endless, the whole concept of endless war. Um, and, and, you know, there's also, um, 
the there's, there's also the theme of cynicism which is very important um that comes up in his first book and continues through the play and through the other books um which is basically marx accurately pre- predicts how the hoax of the warren commission will poison the national psyche and that young people will lose a sense of vision um and you know that that's introduced in the chapter fittingly titled The Rape of the American Conscience. Um, and, and I can quote from that. He says, it can now be said that the American people do not believe anything stated in the report due to this lack of belief as cynicism has now gathered among the citizenry that bodes ill for the nation, a nation whose moral fiber has been torn and shattered cannot long live for when the nation's spirit is destroyed no nation will live. And uh, I recently discovered that that's probably, you know, he was also a biblical scholar, and that's probably a paraphrase from Proverbs, uh, in which it says, quote, of what value is a nation if its people have no vision? Well, you wonder what the vision of America is these days. Excuse me. That that, that that was that was Marx's uh, paraphrase. But the the Bible the, the, from Proverbs, the line is where there is no vision, the people perish. You know, and and you see this so much in America now, Len. You know, with um, especially you know in these small towns where there's like you know the cultural the so-called cultural focal point for teenagers is to hang out at the mall, you know, and do drugs. And there's there's no what would you call it, you know, larger presence of culture and the beauty and the wisdom um, that is embodied in works of art, works of literature, serious historical studies, great library, you know, the great libraries and monuments and museums that you see in European capitals, um, you're not going to find them in those stinky little towns in America. You know, the French have this expression, small town, small mind. And it's not true of everyone, but, you know, there's a great deal of truth in that, uh, around that in America, I think, you know. Okay, so we've kind of been going through the different, uh, there's Act 1, 2, and 3. If we were to give an overview uh, to someone and, and influence them to purchasing this book, h- how would you... Uh, it's kind of it's kind of, again Stanley Marks one of a kind insight, and especially in this topic the JFK assassination. So I highly recommend it. What would you like to say about it? Yeah, you know I think uh, that's a good question. What would pick someone's interest here? I I think that um, this was a guy who, for good reason, was absolutely I don't know if obsessed is the right word, but he grabbed onto this. And he refused to let it go. He had righteous indignation about what happened to the president. And um, for, for whatever reason, um, the conclusions he reached as early as 1966 or 67 were way beyond anyone else's at that time. Um, and so it's a wonderful experience to see how he combined facts from his deep research um 
with his very analytical uh, mind as as an attorney, and also infused all that with a very high octave of intuition, as you just mentioned. You know, th- this is this is why we have to call him a visionary, because he was able to synthesize all that and then reach conclusions and ask questions that um, that he ended up having basically the right answers to. And it it it, it took the rest of us many decades to um, be able to reach those those same conclusions. You know, um, well, you know, one of the things that's here is you you mentioned. Uh, he, he reaches those conclusions. He lays it out for you to, for you to be inquisitive about it. For like, for instance, like you say, mm. who is this high cabal? Who is the king? It makes you think. Well, mm. here are these people. So, it, if it's a matter of fact that they are meeting, he gives them different names, and you have to kind of put it together. So he doesn't. He doesn't say this is um, mm-hmm. Alan Dulles. This is uh, J. Edgar Hoover. He he just says. Here are these. It's kind of like you know, an, an animal farm or something like that, right? You know, uh, right. The, the people have a. Uh, it's up to you to get into it, and that's. It's just that I feel he was so correct, and you mentioned that he was the lawyer, so that's how he was able to, to I think matter of factly, uh, mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. about this, and 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 I think in previous interviews we went through his history, and uh, I hope people go to your website and look up some of these other previous works that you have have brought up from stagnation and and uh mm-hmm. and okay, of course we we thank Bob Dylan for his his uh fantastic insight and he must have read works of Stanley Marks but it's uh it's astounding it just adds to your understanding of the world and it, it just adds to this thing of um our interest in how was a president killed in broad daylight and how did they cover it up and how mm-hmm. did they get away with it? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, if you were reading about it in another country, you would say, oh, well, I guess that's how they do or it's a third world banana, you know, dictatorship. And mm-hmm. yeah, they put their own kangaroo court in. And mm-hmm. um, it's amazing then to see the um, uh what he predicted, and I think some of the you mentioned earlier. What did I like? It was the predictions. Mm, you know mm. that in the uh, in Act Three, I guess, um, which is and and also here, I, I we didn't really mention Act Two. I just want to talk about every little thing. But there's uh, Scene One is the preparations, and Scene Two planting the idea. There, his discussion of planting these doubles, planting these things that will be discovered by other people. And as you mentioned, look, they won't find out about in our generation, but later mm-hmm. on they're going to. So we have to kind of, we have to leave these shadows uh, of doubt for various people. And, uh, you know, at one time they are going to discover the truth, but it will be a hundred years from now. So mm-hmm. let's just be thankful for that. Uh, it's well. just astounding, really, you know. And, you know, also, um, no, you are absolutely right in all that. And, you know, also, I don't, I don't want to give, give this away, so I won't be too specific about it. But, um, you know, in the play and in his nonfiction work, one, one of the reasons that he's so outraged that this assassination has happened and it's been covered up and so on and so forth is that he's saying basically, uh, you know, we're being told we can't dig too deeply into this because it's going to jeopardize national security interests. 
And so he reaches the conclusion that, well, therefore, it's in the national security interests that a president can be gunned down like a dog on the street and nothing will happen. And it can happen again and again and again. And in this play, there is, I mean, it's an open-ended thing where you could interpret it one way or another, but... um, there is what I feel, and what Jim Eugenio also put his finger on this, also feels that there is a prediction in this play that Bobby Kennedy will be killed. Did you pick up on that line? Or, or you probably yeah. didn't get to that yet, right? Oh, no, no. I, I, I've gone over it. Yeah, but there's. Yeah, it, yeah. it's kind of um, it's almost small potatoes because I, I liked what you brought up earlier about even Jim Garrison. If, they make a, if we can't uh, kill him, then we'll do a character assassination. Right, but the, right. but the fact that these people and he's talking about this in 1967. You know, back in 1963-64, I think people still uh, saluted the flag and believed everything. And I think it's when mm-hmm. um, the Vietnam War started, and um, you know, all these like even Muhammad Ali saying, "Why should I go over there and, and kill these other guys? They never did anything to me." I think he said, "I got nothing against them Viet Cong." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, something like that, right? Right, yeah. right. That's what we're saying. Yeah. And people started saying, and then you get people dropping mm. out. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the idea of, of communes popped up and tune in, mm-hmm. turn on, and drop out. You know, we've had it with your way of life, your constant war. And mm. uh, and maybe it happened with uh, around campuses, Mark Lane speaking, or them showing a leaked uh, Zapruder film or things. You know what? We no longer believe and, and trust the government. Mm. And people were burning flags and then just like, you know, so much of the culture changed where we're not signing up and just going to war. You know, in Kent State, right. you know, where the, the sure. police are. I remember are, when it happened. Yeah. yeah. So um, that of course, iconic still Nash and Young. Right. But I'm saying just, to, you know, the police mm. are turned on you. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even with Edward Snowden coming out and says, look what they this FBI, CIA, NSA is not, it's aimed inward now, people. Don't you recognize that? Mm. And, uh, you know, amazingly, our enemy, Soviet Union, now Russia, Putin granted him amnesty there, you know? He said, yeah, you are a political prisoner. I can see how you, you know, look what they've done to Julian Assange day after day. Horrible, horrible. I mean, you know, State-sponsored torture. State-sponsored torture. I mean, you know, the CIA has always used torture, and before them, the OSS. But to have state-sponsored, approved, government-approved torture, like with Guantanamo, which Obama didn't did nothing to do to, to correct. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, you know? we look. We can't solve all the world's problems, but at least for me, I can just try to understand them, mm-hmm. and, and maybe I'll be a catalyst to help someone else will uh right. go on there but you know that that's the thing that i get from a stanley marks he helps me understand how the world is working mm-hmm. where it you know there's gray areas the gray areas and then finally says you know like a jim douglas or something you go yeah this is so mm-hmm. uncomfortable or no jfk and the unspeakable yeah, this is what they did yeah. now if you don't want to accept it but if you'd like to learn about it you know, open the cover of the book and, and dig in. And, and Jim Douglas does a great job. And like I think Fletcher Prouty and like I think Jim Garrison 
and Mae Russell and Stanley Marks. Yeah, those and, are and, all and talk about being books. a catalyst. Look what Bob Dylan did. You know, he Bob summer- Dylan. Yeah. yeah, he shook he shook that book out of my bookcase. That's how I think of it. You know, yeah. it's because of him that book fell out of the bookcase, and I took another look at it. You know. Um, no, but go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, you. that's fine. I'm just, yeah. I'm just talking about an idea here. How, how important I think that the insight of Mr. Stanley Marks was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm thanking you for your good work to help bring it to life by going through and uh, getting these things back in book form for for people to read now. Well, you know, and I also want to thank his daughter, Bobby Marks, because besides just giving me a great deal of help in terms of digging up old photographs and stuff like that, the fact that she was excited to see these books come out. I mean, I probably would not have done more than the first Murder Most Fell. It was so much work. But um, she gave me a lot of enthusiasm and, and, you know, motivation to bring out a total of four books by him. And, you know, it was painstaking because the first edition of Murder Most Foul, um, it was what we, what they call, they used to call a photostat. It wasn't um, offset lithography. It was sort of like a, a, a photocopy of this very poorly typed, faded manuscript with like liquid whiteout corrections in it, very tiny font. And I'm, <laughs> I have very bad eyesight. So I had to literally read out loud the entire book into my cell phone to turn it into uh, voice recognition software, you know, Google voice recognition software. And Google does not recognize Brooklyn accents very well. And so <laughs> it was a lot of work. Let's just put it that way, you know. Um, But it was worth it because, I mean, you know, in a way he's lucky because a lot of writers never get recognized, no matter how hard they work. You know, he died in 1999. So he had to wait 20 years, about 20 years. But but, you know, he's back. He's back in circulation again, which is wonderful. Well, um... and by the way, by the way, let me just quickly add, Glenn, you were talking about the 60s and 70s and dropping out, um, you probably noticed this. There's a great line of dialogue at the end of the play where, where King is addressing Noslin. And he says, face up to it, Mr. Noslin. Our generation made a mess of it. By God, if I were in my 20s, I'd be a hippie. At least they are trying to live their lives without using napalm or nuclear weapons. Four-legged animals protect their young the two-legged ones compelled their young to die for the benefit of the old. Yeah, wow. Great quote, you know? Yeah. Well, once again, thank you so much, Rob, uh, for for your work and effort on all anything to do here with Stanley Marks and other things that you write about. I urge people to go to your website and look over other things that you have done, but A Murder Most Foul or A Time to Cry, A Time to Die is a play written by Stanley Marks, and it didn't come out. Did it come out in 1969? 69? Uh, it, was, it was copyrighted in um, February 1968, but this, this first version of the play has never been published before. Okay? He, he published, like, subsequent versions of it, and he expanded it 
to include all three assassinations. I, I feel the later versions are kind of bloated. I feel this was actually the best one. So this is the first time it's ever been made publicly available. Thanks to you. Well, thanks to you, Len, also, because, you know, uh, you've had me on your show numerous times, and what you're doing is God's work. I mean, it's just amazing what you're doing. And you do an interview a week. I don't know how you do that. Plus, you're a very accomplished musician. I mean, my hat's off to you, man. And and Bobby Marks asked me to thank you as well. Oh, well, uh, very good. Thanks. And say hello to her for me. I will. Uh, and just... Uh, all right. Well, I think we've we've covered the book for now. We're trying to, without really pushing a hard sell on it, just tell people this is worthwhile. Uh, if you liked anything by Stanley Marks, get this. And also, it will help support people doing more work like this. If books sell, they think, okay, a publisher will say, well, I'll put out the next one then, you know, or, good, or good. whatever you're doing. Yeah. Good. Okay, then, before we wrap up, is there anything you wanted to bring up I didn't get to? Oh, I think we, we, we covered it really well. And, um, I, you know, and that's largely thanks to your enthusiasm about the, the play and about Marks. You know, I, I, I can tell how excited you are about it. And it's good to hear that, you know. Yeah, well, I think we spoke a couple of days ago just saying, OK, are, are we going to do this? And I was quite excited then because I think I'd just gone through it the first time. And it's uh. like maybe a, a movie that you watch. You go, I got to watch that again. And now I'm a little more grounded. I, I know what's going to happen. I'm. Mm, mm. So, because uh, I know in JFK, um, to some extent, maybe the movie Nixon also um, by Oliver Stone, you have these people sitting in the Pentagon or, or in a New York businessmen's uh, club where they're sitting around talking about what they're going to do. And, and mm. to the average person, this is so elevated above above our, you know, how can they be talking about that? Or how can they be talking about what they're going to be doing with, with another country 10, 20 years from now? And and mm. and here's a little insight about how it happened. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's interesting as a historical document also to see that um, there was a man in 1966, 1967, who was able to put this picture together, you know, and there were probably other people that we'll never hear of who were, were sitting down and, and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together as well. But, you know, very few and far between. And you know? what's so good about it in one way is that as you read, as you listen, watch the play or, you know, whatever uh, in your mind, play it out. Um, if if you have an f- opinion about who this guy is or that guy, it doesn't really change it. So if mm-hmm. I think it's Alan Dulles or you think it's General mm-hmm. Charles Cabell or if you think, oh, that guy must have been J. Edgar Hoover, at least you get the idea of some- how this happens. Mm-hmm. And how the and and without having to have any argument about it, it's just, oh, okay. Well, I'm looking at it from your point of view, and here's another point of view. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, speaking of Dulles, in in um, Stan's 1979 version of the play, he actually includes this remark where he, where he has one character say, "Dulles marked him for death when he resigned." Wow. You know, referring to the fact that CIA director Alan Dulles was forced to resign by JFK after the Bay of Pigs incident. So it's, you know, this this is an idea that was always in Marx's head that, you know, that Dulles played a key role in, in one way or another, you know. Very right. good. 
thank thanks you so again, much Lord. for your time again, and and thanks for your hard work. Like you mentioned, uh, y- your character recognition and all this, and putting it together. <laughs> uh, it's just I have an idea, but I think a lot of people don't have an idea of how much time and effort went to formatting, to to even create a book, and then finding a publisher. And uh, mm-hmm. so thank you for your good work. And once again, say hello to Bobby for me. I will. Okay, great, Len. Thanks. Thanks again so much for all your help. I appreciate it. You're very Bye-bye welcome. Now.